We stand in the rain, in a long line, waiting at Ford Highland Park. For work, you know what work is. If you're old enough to read this, you know what work is. Although you may not do it. Forget you, this is about waiting. Shifting from one foot to another, feeling the light rain falling like mist into your hair. Blurring your vision until you think you see your own brother ahead of you. Maybe ten places. You rub your glasses with your fingers. And of course it's someone else's brother. Narrower across the shoulders than yours. But with the same sad slouch. The grin that does not hide the stubbornness. The sad refusal to give in to rain. To the hours of wasted waiting. To the knowledge that somewhere ahead a man is waiting who will say, No, we're not hiring today for any reason he wants. You love your brother now, suddenly you can hardly stand the love flooding you for your brother, who's not beside you, or behind, or ahead, because he's home trying to sleep off a miserable night shift at Cadillac, so he can get up before noon to study his German, works eight hours a night so he can sing Wagner, the opera you hate most, the worst music ever invented. How long has it been since you told him you loved him? held his wide shoulders, opened your eyes wide and said those words, and maybe kissed his cheek. You've never done something so simple, so obvious, not because you're too young or too dumb, not because you're jealous or even mean or incapable of crying in the presence of another man. No, just because you don't know what work is. Hello and welcome to Words That Burn a podcast about poetry. Each week, I read a poem, look at its inner workings, and hopefully show you what makes it tick. This week's poem is What Work Is by Philip Levine. Before I begin, I have a suggestion. Try to find a copy of the poem somewhere, in a physical form, maybe on your mobile, or in a copy of a book that you have, so that you can read along. It makes things that little bit easier. This poem was published in 1991, and is often the most lauded poem in Levine's catalogue. I knew none of this the first time I read it. It struck me all at once. It has an incredible unity of purpose. It is succinct and capable of driving Levine's own feelings into the mind of the reader. I have a tendency to call it cinematic poetry, or painterly poetry, because of the way Levine seems to be able to conjure the scene directly into his listener's mind's eye. This scene creation has been praised and damned in equal measure by critics of Levine. For me, however, it is a perfect way for Levine to make his work accessible to everyone, but more importantly, to those that don't have the skills or education to deal with literary works or elitist writing. As Levine put it himself, I saw that the people that I was working with were voiceless in a way. In terms of the literature of the United States, they weren't being heard. Nobody was speaking for them. and as young people will, you know, I took this foolish vow that I would speak for them, and that's what my life would be, and sure enough I've gone and done it. Or I've tried anyway. The working classes, especially those of Detroit where he was born, were Levine's muse. The quote I just read serves to illustrate exactly why he wrote about them. What work is can only be described as an elegy, a poem of loss and sacrifice. It's the perfect choice for Levine here, because of its public role. The elegy is a form that can be said to have been co-authored 
by a community. This is what Mark Strand and Ivan Boland define the elegy as. The community nature of this form furthers the idea that Levine speaks for a group that cannot speak for themselves. An elegy can be written for a person or for a loss of something much more ephemeral. Here, it serves as the latter to address the loss of passion and dignity that the working classes have experienced over time. A loss achieved simply by being ground down by poverty and hardship day in and day out. For ease of understanding, I've split the poem into four sections to be analysed by myself. With that in mind, let's begin. We stand in the rain in a long line waiting at Ford Highland Park for work. You know what work is. If you're old enough to read this, you know what work is. Although you may not do it. Forget you. This is about waiting. Shifting from one foot to another. Feeling the light rain falling like mist into your hair, blurring your vision. These are Levine's scene-setting lines. Immediately, we the listener understand that Levine considers himself part of a group, a collective. This is done through his choice of the word, we, to start the poem. The second character that is shown to us is you. This choice of pronoun, both in the title and the majority of the main body, is very clever as it instantly engages the reader's emotions. They are being placed firmly alongside this line of people in the rain. That titular you presents a host of possible interpretations. For me, it's Levine addressing his younger self, a boy who was sure that work was all purely manual, that hard work meant backbreaking labor and there was no deeper meaning to the term. With this reading of the poem, the phrase you know what work is rings a little hollow as if his younger self is repressing the truth, reconciling his poet nature now with what he would have defined as a real job in his past. This was certainly something he struggled with when he was torn between choosing to go to university or continuing in the family business and going into construction, manufacturing and hard labour. In setting up the we you subjects, the poem becomes more of a dialogue in the style of Aristotle something to be used as an investigative tool as opposed to mere documentation. One more detail is added here. Ford Highland Park, a landmark of labour and sweat in Detroit. The poem is to be an investigation of the sensations that the city and his class have seared into him. The line, forget you, sounds like a reproach or a reprimand, a call not to be selfish. The idea that the individual's concerns pale in comparison to the groups. The line from the first section, this is about waiting, seems to be a daily ritual, a reenacted test of patience, an act every man has to do, or rather feels they must do daily. You can almost feel the soft rain seeping into their hair, reaching even their bones. Levine paints every feeling of this scene with his words. The ache of tired feet are invoked in the reader's mind with shifting from foot to foot. A toll is demanded on every part of a working man's body, even blurring your vision. The poet is intensely focused on invoking that sense of place, drenched in weariness and bitter resignation. This image will return later in the poem. Until you think you see your own brother ahead of you, maybe ten places, you rub your glasses with your fingers, and of course it's someone else's brother narrower across the shoulders than yours, but with the same sad slouch, the grin that does not hide the stubbornness, the sad refusal to give in to rain, 
to the hours of wasted waiting, to the knowledge that somewhere ahead, a man is waiting who will say, no, we're not hiring today, for any reason he wants. There's a definite shift in tone in this second section. There's a strange glimmer of hope in the bleak scene, the glimpse of a brother in this case. It may be Levine's, it may be an unknown worker's, however, it is a way to humanize the you of the opening section. These men are not robots, though they certainly seem to be viewed like that in some ways, at least to Levine. They have families, bloodlines, dependents, and unfortunately, poverty is a lineage because it would not be so unusual to find your brother or father in the line with you. The speaker is taken aback, rubbing their glasses, the weariness of their present task making them adult, prone to mistake. Unfortunately, it's someone else's brother. It's important to note they don't look dissimilar to the speaker's own. While their physical appearance may be different, narrower across the shoulders, nonetheless, this lot in life exacts a similar price from everyone, but with the same sad slouch, the grin that does not hide stubbornness, the sad refusal to give in to rain, to the hours of wasted waiting. There is resilience to the people Levine writes about, a need to continue, a refusal to be bowed by their circumstance. It's this aspect of his work that makes his poetry so engaging. They are recognizable and relatable to his audience's characters. He admitted as much himself. I mean, you're never going to pick up a poem of mine, unless it's a comic poem, about wine mavens, right? Or real estate agents, you know, or CEOs. They're going to be auto workers, or they're going to be guys working on a construction site, or women complaining about how the grease eats into their hands because of the jobs they do. Nihilism seeps back in along with the physical towards the end of the section. Hours of waiting wasted. It is clearly often the case that this sacrifice of time amounts to nothing. There is a certain fatalistic tone to the lines, the knowledge that somewhere ahead a man is waiting who will say, no, we're not hiring today. Another ritual, this time one of failure, monotonous, repeating the same action in the hopes of some beneficial result. In the case of this poem, employment. I've repeated the word ritual a few times over the course of this podcast, and there does seem to be an almost religious, procession-like quality to the whole poem. This religious affectation has been noted by other critics, like Phoebe Pettingill, who says that Levine is frequently blurring the line between poetic utterance and prayer. What work is, in particular, has a hymn-like quality. To me, there is an interesting power dynamic at play if the religious analogy is to be believed. The man who refuses them work does so for any reason he wants. There is a hint of bitterness to the elitism of this, but it is also reminiscent of the ineffable, unknowable quality of some capricious, feckless god. If the previous section outlines the rituals and penance of the working classes, then the following must be the revelation. You love your brother. Now suddenly you can hardly stand the love flooding you for your brother, who's not beside you, or behind, or ahead, because he's home, trying to sleep off a miserable night shift at Cadillac, so he can get up before noon to study his German, works eight hours a night so he can sing Wagner, the opera you hate most, the worst music ever invented. This is written as some bolt from the blue in a rain-soaked city. A wave of emotion sweeps over the you 
of the poem. This section begins to restructure the poem significantly. Now the question of what work is, is really being dissected. His brother is not even physically near him, not beside you or behind or ahead, and yet he is seized by this feeling for the first time in the poem. We are shown that these men, who are forced to wait in long lines or work miserable nights at Cadillac, are capable of great passions. In the case of the brother, he wants to sing German opera. The speaker states the opera you hate the most, the worst music ever invented. This introduces so many contrasts into the poem. Firstly, there is passion versus necessity. The lines of the opera singers show nothing but dedication to something they truly care about. They work all night and they study all day to learn German. Second, there is the juxtaposition of surface versus depth. Until this point, the speaker assumed they knew what work was. But what is true work without dedication? What is a paycheck compared to your calling? The speaker seems to express a sort of astonishment at this level of love and care for something that he himself can't stand. The worst music ever invented. There's a lack of comprehension that undermines the message from the beginning of the poem. The speaker thought they understood what work is. But now they've seen this level of commitment, their belief has been shaken. And once the thread has been tugged, it begins to unravel. How long has it been since you told him you loved him, held his wide shoulders, opened your eyes wide, said those words, and maybe kissed his cheek? You've never done something so simple, so obvious. Not because you're too young or too dumb. Not because you're jealous or even mean or incapable of crying in the presence of another man. No, just because you don't know what work is. Here, the true meaning of work is revealed. Everything the you of the opening section understood of work was actually avoidance. It's laid bare here. Work is putting in the time to the things you truly love and care about. Levine doesn't blame this on the you of his opening section. To his mind, all working class lives run in a form of repression and numbness. The ability to keep taking what life is dishing out. A kind of toxic stoicism that seals people off from those around them and even themselves. The final section picks up with a frenetic pace. The lines have shortened. The excuses and reasoning come fast and hard, almost as though Levine is trying to imitate the effect of the ever-present rain. Finally, the mantra of the poem is inverted and the truth is laid bare yet again. You don't know what work is. It's a small, simple reason, not some deep, profound revelation. And in this smallness, it makes it hurt all the more. So why did I choose this poem? I have rarely read a poem with such a strong emotional impact as this. The final section is the crescendo, but the entire poem builds to it in a way that I can never fail to react to. A friend of Levine's, Joyce Carol Oates, may have put it best when she said, he is one of those poets whose work is so emotionally intense and yet so controlled, so concentrated, that the accumulative effect of reading a number of his related poems can be shattering. None of his other work displays that controlled effect quite as well as this one. More importantly, I chose this poem because I think it encompasses everything Levine set out to write about when he wanted to become a poet. I believed, even then, that if I could transform my experience into poetry, I would give it the value and dignity it did not begin to possess on its own. I thought, too, that if I could write about it, I could come to understand it. I believed that if I could understand my life, or at least the part that my work played in it, 
I could embrace it with some degree of joy, an element conspicuously missing from my life. To me, this poem brims with value and dignity and helps many people to understand what role work plays in their life. So, how did I do? Do you agree with my reading? Or am I a million miles off? I will point out, as always, that this is my interpretation and is very much up for debate. If you think I missed the mark and you would like to explain to me what you think of Philip Levine's poem, What Work Is, you can get in touch with me in loads of places. Send me an email at wordsthatburnpodcast at gmail.com or find me on Instagram at wordsthatburnpodcast where I upload helpful study guides and bonus material. You can find the show notes for this episode at wordsthatburnpodcast.com complete with full references to all articles used to research this piece. This episode was written and produced by me, Benjamin Colopy. The music for this week's episode was provided by Scott Buckley and is used under Creative Commons license. As always, I really appreciate you spending time with me, and hopefully you'll hear from me again soon.